Hello, Grace family. So grateful to be with you again this week. And it's hard to believe, but today, this weekend, marks one year since we had our first lockdown. So we've been doing these videos for an entire year, and we're so grateful that you continue to gather with us in this way. We're also super encouraged that the things in our county seem to show that our numbers are dwindling with COVID and people are getting vaccinated. And so we're super hopeful that we'll be able to gather in person all together sometime in the near future. But as much as these circumstances are changing and it's wonderful to see that change, we don't want to be people whose hope is dependent on circumstances. We want to be people who really find our hope in the Lord, whatever it is that we're facing into. Psalm 62 reminds us that our hope, true hope, is found in Him alone. And so we want to be people who rise up in an understanding that God is our true hope and we're not looking at the things around us that, as we know, are shifting and changing all the time to give us hope. So to that end, let's just take a moment to pray and ask God to infuse us with the hope He alone can offer us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who has promised us to be trustworthy, who has unfailing love towards us, that you are faithful even when we are faithless. Father, we thank you that we can truly put our hope on you, not just for eternity, but for today, that you are a God who is faithful to your promises, that you are doing all things for our good, that you are working things out for the purpose of our faith and relationship with you, that we can be um, dependent on that. Lord, in our need, in our longings for things to change in our circumstances, we ask that you would allow us to see you in the midst of that and not be dependent on those things for hope, but actually to turn our hearts to you. Lord, we thank you for the work we're do you're doing. We thank you that uh, the numbers of COVID are seeming to go down and that we have the possibility of gathering again. Lord, I have your hand on this community as we continue to navigate these times. We pray this in your name. Amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong end. Perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me Hold him there, the prison land. 
continuing our look at the kingdom parables in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. So join along with me. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. So today we continue this series on the kingdom of God, and we enter into a new chapter in Matthew's gospel, chapter 25. So just to remind you where we've been, we started in Jesus' great kingdom message, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, and then we spent three weeks looking at chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom, and now we move to chapter 25, where we'll get three more parables of the kingdom. And here's how this all fits together. In, in chapter 13, Jesus gives us parables about the present kingdom, his, his first coming, and how his first coming and the kingdom emerging happened in this surprisingly slow and gradual way, and it cropped up amongst all the other kingdoms of the world. And we find ourselves caught up in this kingdom conflict, and that's just the way that God is bringing his kingdom. Now in chapter 25, Jesus talks about the future kingdom at his second coming, the return of the king, and what that will be like. And we'll have three metaphors for that return. He'll come as a bride, we'll see today, or as a bridegroom, we'll see today. Uh, he'll come as a master for his servants. And then finally, he'll come as the great king in all his glory. So we look at the future kingdom. And really what these parables address is, how do we live our lives now in light of that future day, that future coming kingdom? And so what I'd like to do before we look at this first parable, I'd like just to make a general comment about the return of Jesus. And this is just my observation, but it's this. Um, I think we don't spend enough time meditating on the reality, the simple fact of Jesus' second coming. And at the same time, I think we spend too much time uh, speculating on the exact timing and the exact events associated with Jesus' second coming. So here's what I mean by that. Um, 
I don't think we spend enough time thinking about Jesus' return. And I think there were generations before us where they thought a lot more about eternity. They talked about going to heaven, and that was really talked about a lot. And I think there was maybe a, an appropriate corrective to that in recent decades where people are now saying, yeah, but the kingdom is something that's here now. And how are we being invited to live now? It's not just a ticket to heaven, but you know, what is, what is the nowness of the kingdom? And I think that's a helpful corrective. But I, I wonder if the pendulum hasn't swung too much so that now the average Christian thinks almost nothing of eternity, that we're almost entirely focused on this world and today, and we've lost sight of that future day and what it means to live in light of that future day. And so I think we could grow in, in meditating, just thinking more on, on the second coming of Jesus. But that being said, I think we also sometimes, or at least in certain circles, uh, spend too much time speculating on the exact details, exact timing of Jesus' return. And, and maybe you're familiar with this, but we've probably all had historical figures that are, have been identified to us as the Antichrist. Or there are certain nations that will rise up that we'll see cast in the, as you know, some fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. I'm sure in the pandemic, you've heard certain uh, prophecies and certain details in the Old Testament or the New Testament that people are saying, this is being fulfilled and this is proof uh, that we're in the end times right now. And I guess my thoughts on that kind of speculation would be this. Um, those sorts of things are, they're fascinating, they're entertaining, they're interesting to, to look at our newspapers and look at biblical data and say, here it is, it's happening in our day. Um, but I, I don't actually think that it's particularly fruitful. Um, I don't think it actually prepares us morally or spiritually to be the kinds of people who are ready for Jesus' return. To use biblical language, it kind of gives us what our itching ears want to hear, but I don't think there's a lot of spiritual fruit. And if you've been around long enough, and this kind of thinking, that the targets just kind of keep changing over the decades. The game stays the same, but the, the target keeps changing. And so you wonder, is there really validity to this? And I think to the point of this parable, Jesus ends by saying, you won't know the day or the hour. Earlier in chapter 24, he says, about the day and the hour, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son himself, but only the Father. And so Jesus is very explicit. You're not going to know exactly when this is going to happen, and it doesn't matter. So don't Spend too much time trying to figure out exactly when it's going to happen. Instead, be the kind of people who are prepared for when it happens by the way you live now. All right. So all that to say, I think we should spend less time speculating on the details and the timing and more time actually just focused on the simple fact and the reality of his return and preparing ourselves to be the kinds of people who will be ready for his return. So with that, let's look at this first parable in chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Let's just acknowledge that at least at first glance seems a bit strange and bizarre and frankly off-putting to some of us. Uh, you have this groom, uh, at least in the NIV, coming to ten virgins. And you might be wondering, like, are, are all these gals marrying this groom? Is this like a first century harem? Like, what's, what's with the oil and the lamps? Like, what's going on? And we just have to acknowledge, you know, <laughs> there, we've got some cultural distance from this story, 2,000 years in a different culture. And so I think it's safe to assume that Jesus is saying things that his first century audience would readily identify with. He's telling a story that they would all relate to. But now, you know, 2,000 years later, we have to do some, some work to understand what was going on. And fortunately, we have um, historians and biblical scholars that can help us do that. So let me, um, I want to just read actually from uh, a scholar, Kenneth Bailey, who uh, kind of specializes in first century Jewish culture. 
And he articulates the scene that Jesus is drawing up. And I think once you just hear me read this, it'll clear away some of the questions and confusion that we initially feel when we read this seemingly strange story. So let me just read to you from Kenneth Bailey. So he's just explaining um, what a first century country wedding would look like. Here's his words. The groom and several close friends make their way to the home of the bride, uh, which is assumed to be across town or in a nearby village. Meanwhile, a crowd begins to gather at the groom's house. Okay, so let me suggest these, these 10 virgins. They're just 10 young women who are part of the crowd that's gathering at the groom's house while he goes and picks up his bride. There's part of the wedding celebration. Uh, so, okay, from the bride's house, I love this. The groom collects his bride and her, escorts her back to his house and his family where the crowd awaits and the marriage feast will be held. The bride would be placed on the back of a riding animal and the groom with his friends would form a disorganized, exuberant parade. This happy group would take the longest possible route back to the groom's home deliberately, wandering through as many streets of the village as possible so that most of the village could see and cheer them on as they passed. At the groom's home, some of the crowd would wait in the street as they anticipate the arrival of the wedding party. And in this case, among the guests are 10 young women. The parade winding slowly through the village takes a bit longer than these 10 young women and their youthful enthusiasm anticipate. Finally, the front of the parade enters the alley and the cry goes out, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Okay, so hopefully just hearing that sets the stage for what Jesus is talking about. So here you have these 10 young women who are simply part of the crowd at the groom's house waiting for him to collect his bride and bring her home so that they can go then into the house to celebrate what we would think of as a wedding reception. And all 10 uh, of these women have brought lamps uh, with oil, which is you know the way you, you have lamps back then. And the idea there being either because any young woman at late at night would would carry a lamp for safety's sake, or maybe it's part of some you know ceremonial welcoming in of of the groom and his bride, much like we would maybe throw rice or something like to a married couple. Maybe there's some sort of lighted welcoming ceremony. All right, so that's the picture. I think once you hear that, it kind of makes sense what Jesus is saying. And I don't think we're meant to press every detail in this parable and try to come up with some spiritual meaning to each thing. I think Jesus is just drawing a general point about his return. And I think the general parallels are pretty obvious. Um, first is this, Jesus, like the groom in this, Jesus himself is a groom, right? He's always cast in the role of a groom in the, in the, in the New Testament. Uh, he comes for his bride and he's going to return for his bride. And I know that the analogy kind of breaks down to this, but certainly Jesus is a groom. Uh, and his return will, like this story, will be a great celebration. What Revelation calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. It will be the great eternal celebration. And then, as in this story, um, there's a delay in his return, right? As the wedding party is wandering through the streets, they're delayed. They don't get there till midnight. Well, Jesus' return has been now 2,000 years in counting, but it's not what people expected. It's longer than people expected. And so the key point, obviously, in this, in this passage is, is the need to be ready, to keep watch, to use Jesus' language, right? To be prepared for the long haul, even if the groom is slow in coming. And then, of course, there's this um, sort of harsh reality that, that the door to the kingdom closes at some point. 
right? Like in this time, there's an openness, but at some point the groom returns and there's not a second chance at that point. The door is closed. And so to not be ready for that moment is actually ends up to be told by the groom, I actually never knew you. Okay, so those are some of the broad themes of the passage. So you have these 10 young women. It's part of the wedding party. Uh, and we're to you know, identify with them in the story. And all of them, all 10 have been invited to the party, to the wedding. All of them have accepted the invitation and all of them assume that they're going to celebrate uh, in, the, in the celebration. But five of them prepare. They recognize that he might be slow in coming. So they bring enough oil with them so that they can keep their lamps lit so that they can provide the light and welcome him as he comes. And five of them don't prepare. They, they don't realize it could be a long time coming. And so when he does come, they're, they're not ready for that, right? And the preparation makes all the difference in the world. So let me suggest that these 10 women essentially represent the visible church, okay? People who would identify themselves as Jesus followers. Any, anyone who would identify with the Jesus crowd, if I can say it that way. But what we find out in this story is that not all who identify right, with the crowd are authentic, right? They're, they're, they're not all of them are, are worthy to join the eternal celebration. And if you've been paying attention in this series, this is a consistent theme, uh, theme we've been seeing. So in chapter 13, we looked at the parable of the, so, the soils, right? And you had these three soils that uh, what looked to be an authentic crop, uh, you know, cropped up and the, and the plant came up, but then only one of those was actually found to be authentically a plant that would bear lasting fruit. Or back in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we heard of there the return of Jesus and these people who would come to him in that time and say, Lord, Lord, you know, didn't we do amazing things? Didn't we you know, perform miracles? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And, and they think they're in and Jesus will say, I, I never knew you. And if you look in our passage, that is the identical language in this passage, verse 11. These five women say, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And he says, truly, I tell you, I, I don't know you, right? So there's, there's this assumption on, on certain people's parts of being part of Jesus' thing, but there's something amiss. Uh, there's, there's not an internal reality that, that lines up with the external uh, works, or there's not a soil that is deeply receptive to Jesus' transforming work over time. Or in, in this parable, there's, there's not oil left to keep this lamp burning until he returns. And so I think what Jesus is getting at is there, there are people who, maybe to use our language today, who, who received the invitation, who, who prayed the prayer, who accepted Jesus into their heart, right? Who think they've got a ticket to heaven. And Jesus is saying, but that's not what counts. That, that alone isn't what counts. It's I'm looking for a people who are ready for my return, a, a people who are prepared, who are faithful uh, and faith-filled <laughs> over the long haul until I return. And so the call here is to, as he says at the end, to constantly keep watch, to be ready, to, to live lives so that we're ready for that day when Jesus returns. And Jesus doesn't, in this parable, draw out specifically, okay, what does readiness look like? Like we have this image of having enough oil, but how do we stay ready? What, like, what do we do and what don't we do? But he doesn't give us a clear answer. And so I'm actually not going to give us a list of, of do's and don'ts today. But I, I do want to offer this. What I thought would be helpful 
is just to take a moment to actually picture the return of Christ. Picture that day, the second coming, the return of the king, the return of the bridegroom. And I'm going to read to you two passages from Revelation that give us two different pictures of his return. So I just want you to imagine this for a second. Here's Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So there you have Jesus coming as, as the king on a throne or, or the great judge, right? To offer his definitive judgment on all people. Now, let me give you another picture. This is Revelation 19. This is a more celebratory picture of his return. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So those are just images, right? Just pictures of what his return will be like. One terrifying, one beautiful. But it is an event, whatever it actually looks like, that is absolutely guaranteed for all of us. And so the question is, how do we make ourselves ready for that cosmic event? How do we keep watch? How do we prepare ourselves for that? And again, I don't have a specific set of do's and don'ts, but here's what I was thinking for myself. One day Jesus is going to return or, or I'm going to die first, but whatever, you know, whatever comes first, that's going to be a day of reckoning for me. And here's what I want. I want that event. I want that moment to be the fulfillment of my deepest desires and pursuits. Whatever that event looks like, I want to step into that and go, yes, this is the fulfillment of my deepest desires and pursuits. And that could only be the case if he, if the bridegroom is my deepest desire and pursuit. And, and that would only be the case, I think, if I lived my life here in pursuit of him. If the thing I'm mainly after in this life, every day of my life is, I just want to know him better. I want to trust him. I want to enjoy him. I want to obey him. I want to serve him. I want to spend time with him. I want to listen to him. I want to talk to him. And I want to aim to please him. And everything I do, I want to do that at work. I want to do that at home. I want to do that with my money. I want to do that with my time, right? He is the thing I'm after. He's the aim of my life. And so that event, his second coming is simply the fulfillment of my deepest desires in this life. That's what I want that experience to be like. Because here's the alternative. <laughs> Let me just tease this out. The alternative is, yeah, I made a profession of faith at some point, right? I, I prayed a prayer, but my life is not fundamentally geared towards Jesus. It, my, my life is fundamentally geared towards other pursuits, towards worldly pursuits, right? Whether those are pursuits of, of comfort or ease or, or freedom to do what I want or 
or a pursuit of human approval or pursuit of, of wealth and financial security or pursuit of beauty or, or, or status or fame or, or just entertainment, right? That, that really, in the end, that's what I do with my days. Those are the pursuits of my days. And I just kind of dress all that up in Christian clothes. Okay, if that's what my life actually looks like, then that moment, the return of Jesus, that will not be a fulfillment of my desires. That will be a terrifying disruption of what I've been all, all about in my life. I, I'll experience that as I'm kind of doing these things and all of a sudden this cosmic moment happens that's this disruption to this, what I've been doing. And I realize, oh my gosh, like I've been about these things, but this is the thing that matters, right? And, and, and here he is. And this is all that matters. And the problem is this hasn't been what, what has mattered to me. And now, but it's here. It's this grand disruption. And the problem is I can't just look to the person next to me and say, I, hey, you're ready. I want to borrow what you've got, <laughs> right? And that's what the, that's what the five virgins try, try to do. They say, give us some of your oil. But that's not something you can share, right? That's either something you have or you don't. It's, it's about what your life is all about. And so it'd be this terrifying moment of realizing, oh my gosh, my life has been about something that now I realize is not the important thing. And I might cry out in that moment, Lord, Lord. And he'll look at me and say, I didn't know you, right? You weren't about me. You were just part of my crowd, but you weren't about me. That's the danger. So let me put this positively. <laughs> to put this positively, how do we live our days now? so that we're ready for that moment. So that that day is just a fulfillment of our pursuits and desires right here, right now. Because we've been living every day of our lives for Jesus. We've been seeking first his kingdom, seeking first his righteousness, seeking him first. I wanna leave you with a couple passages. Um, one passage that I think is fitting because it, it talks about this, this groom and bride analogy. And this is one of my favorite passages, and it's also a convicting one. This comes from 2 Corinthians. But Paul says this. He says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And I love that last phrase, the way that I, I learned it was, the goal of our lives is to pursue this pure and simple devotion to Christ. And life is complicated, but even in the midst of the complexities of life, we can still have a simple goal. In the end, my goal is Jesus. I wanna pursue him. I wanna have this pure and simple devotion to him. And the danger is that slowly over time, we get led astray, we sort of wander from that pure, and simple devotion to Jesus. And we start pursuing the things of the world and it happens gradually and slowly so that we kind of lose our way and we get caught up in all the world has to offer. And so I wanna call us back to this pure and simple devotion to Christ. Let me leave you on a personal note and share another passage with you. Um, so last week, I, I just took a half day alone just to, to reflect, spend time with, with the Lord, 
uh, spend time in prayer. And I was just reading through our, our, just our yearly grace um, reading program. And I came across, it was that for that day, and I came across the story of Martha and Mary. And I was so convicted by that simple story again. And you, you know the story most likely, right? Martha is getting everything ready uh, for Jesus at the house. And, and Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus and taking in his teaching. And, and you know, she's devoted to him. And um, Luke describes Martha in that story as distracted. She's distracted with all the things she has to do. And then Jesus speaks into Martha with these words. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And I heard that, and I thought, oh my gosh, I, I feel like it was like Jesus just took that, but he just put my name in there. <laughs> David, David, you are worried and distracted about many things, worried and upset and distracted about many things. And I realized that is so true of me right now. I, I, I find myself worried and distracted by many things, whatever those things be, whether that's my schedule or my possessions or my body as I hit my, my mid-40s, people's opinion of me, my, my performance, um, being distracted by my digital devices, by all the things that are happening in this world, worried, upset, distracted, and I felt this simple call of Jesus call me back saying, one thing is needed. Sit at my feet, take in my words, devote yourself to me. And let that be the aim of your life every day. The one thing that you do in all that you do, let that be the one thing you're always doing. So I leave you with that and ask you that simple question. Do you find yourself worried and upset? and distracted by many things? If so, uh, maybe it's time to simplify your goals, to simplify your pursuits. And I wanna invite you to seek the one person who matters in this life, and the only person, I promise you, the only person who will matter on that great day. Well, hey friends, as always, we want to be people who seek to faithfully respond to what God presents us through his word. And today, as we consider this goal of living our lives with a pure and simple devotion to Jesus, so that we are ready and waiting for his return, there are a couple of ways that come to mind that could be really helpful ways to respond to all this. One is a response of detachment and the other is a response of attachment. First, let's think about detachment. Is there anything in your life right now that, as you honestly reflect, is a distraction to your pursuit of Christ? And this could be anything really, but think about it. Do you have an unhealthy attachment to something? Something you are pursuing that distracts you from the greater pursuit of Christ? Maybe it's a sin you're clinging to or a way you use your time that is unhelpful in some way. Is there something that Jesus would clearly want you to let go of in order to be more devoted to him? Let's just take a moment right now to consider that question for yourself.
Now, let's think about attachment. Is there something you could do or engage in that would serve to foster a pure and simple devotion to Christ so that he is a more substantial part of your life? And what might that be? Maybe it's enfolding a spiritual practice into your daily rhythms, or maybe it's giving more of yourself to something that you're already doing, but just making it more wholehearted. Whatever you might come up with, let's take some time right now for you to consider what a life-giving attachment might be for you. Father, we don't want to live our lives asleep to your call for our lives and unprepared for your return. So would you awaken us to the importance of being watchful and ready? And may we not waste our time on things and concerns that really don't matter in the end. So, Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom and discernment that we might give ourselves to those things that matter most, and most importantly, to anything that will cultivate greater intimacy with you. And so, Lord, if we need to jettison certain things from our lives, give us the courage and the conviction to do so. And if we need to give ourselves to something new or to something maybe we're already doing, but doing it with fresh vision and vigor, that we might experience you in deeper ways, then Lord, help us to do so. And Lord, whether it's a matter of detaching or attaching, we want to move towards those things with a strong conviction that doing so will lead to what's truly good, truly life-giving and joy-producing. And so may our vision for those things and our union with you be our fuel for those endeavors. We need your help. And we know you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so we count on that truth about you. Thank you, Father. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my soul. How great Thou art, how great.
hope you've been encouraged today by what you've heard, and we invite you to continue the conversation together, whoever you may be with, uh, and so we've provided you some discussion questions immediately following this video. And let us leave you with this great benediction. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.